Welcome to another episode of This Week in the Ancient Near East, the podcast that takes archaeology exactly as seriously as it deserves. I'm Alex Jaffe, director of the Bob and Ray Institute of Archaeology at the University of Southern North Dakota at Hoople. With me, as it turns out, are two academics from real institutions, Professor J.P. Dessel of the University of Tennessee and Professor Rachel Hallett of the State University of New York at Purchase. We're coming to you from the glamorous Osiris Room, high atop a luxurious Hotel Hoople here in beautiful downtown Hoople. Today we're talking about two new discoveries from Egypt. The first is a 26th Dynasty mummification workshop with jars containing various materials used in the process. They're helpfully labeled with, use this one for the head, and so on, but they include exotic ingredients that came from as far away as Southeast Asia and Africa. The second is a pit with a whole bunch of sun-dried crocodiles. So what's going on? We all know that Egyptians would mummify just about anything with two feet or four feet, but what about the exotic ingredients? Did Egyptian elites just keep elaborating the mummification process more and more as trade routes opened and materials became available? Or did ex- demand for exotics, that's what I'm trying to say, open trade routes. Was there some kind of Egyptian Gwyneth Paltrow figure who just kept pushing weird-smelling unguents on Egyptians, you know, to fancy them up for the afterlife? And what's the difference between sacrificing a vicious crocodile and a gentle pussycat? Well, as long as we don't talk about sacrificing hungry, hungry hippos. Here we are, and I have a very apropos um, lightning round for you. Simple and to the point. Favorite Egyptian god or goddess? Ooh. Hmm. Interesting. So many to choose from. Yeah. (laughs) Such large portions. That's that's a nice thing about these polytheists. (laughs) I mean, today's topic, Sobek. Sobek is a good one. Sobek is good. He is what's good. The, what's Although the I always think of when I hear the word the name Sobek, I think of like Sobchek. Right. Um, and I think then I go to um The Dude Abides. The Dude Abides. So And uh, then Happy is the baboon headed god. Um the baboon god. He's he's the Nile, right? Happy? Maybe not. And then there's the ibis-headed god is what, Thoth? Thoth. Yeah. Yeah. I'll go with Thoth. Oh, okay. The ibis-headed god is just right out of Stargate. Okay. Right, right, right. We should talk about Stargate sometime. (laughs) That would be fun. Um, I'll go with, with, um, I've always been partial to Horus. Not quite sure why. Um, I like the phrase, the living Horus. Um, but but I also have always been a fan of Hathor, partly because of the great hairstyle. But, yeah, it's sort of Mary, Mary, Mary Tyler Moore kind of 
it's what's her name? It's um, it's that girl. That girl. Yeah. yeah. Um, Alex. Uh, Anubis, the oh. jackal-headed god, yeah, guardian of the royal one. necropolis. Yeah, Anubis is a good one. Um, okay, so you're and- partial to the gods associated with death, as opposed to my life uh, with Horus. Okay, I think that's reading a bit much into it. <laughs> I'm just picking cool-looking animal heads. Well, yeah, <laughs> that's the and, best way. And I had, I had, or have a uh, a denim jacket onto which uh, the back onto which someone embroidered very lovely uh, Anubis many, 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 many years ago, which I gave to my son because <laughs> it's like so small on me. Um, <laughs> I think I think that's a tradition, though. We all do that. What get too fat to wear our clothes and give them to our, our, <laughs> our sons, to our children? <laughs> then the question is, do they want the discarded clothes? But oh yeah, yeah, vintage, right. exactly. Living vintage. That was a good lightning round. I have a I have another lightning round question that I was thinking of. Um, yeah. We can do it really. <laughs> quickly a I dual just wanna, lightning round yeah i just want to know who everybody's favorite mummy is hmm. my own uh-huh. um i have a favorite mummy <laughs> <laughs> oh you better find a favorite mummy yeah we once talked about second enray right on this broadcast yeah we had his brains bashed in right <laughs> right not not really a role model for any of us, I would say, but you know. Right. But he actually he Mummies became, of Note. Mummies of Note. He became my favorite mummy when I learned about him when we were doing that podcast. Before that, I would have said Ramses II. So. You know, a lot of people don't even think you should talk about mummies or look at mummies anymore. Right. Like some sort of privacy violation or HIPAA violation going on. But let's right. leave that for another time. Well, who's the hippo god? <laughs> oh, there is a hippo oh, yeah. god. Oh, the hippo yeah. god that's very adorable. Right. Right. I can picture him, but I don't remember. Um, yeah, not Wally Gator. <laughs> <laughs> there was a hippo that Wally Gator hung out with. Right. I got to look that up. Ta- Ta- Towerette. Oh, that's it. Yeah. I had a cheat to find that, but... Yeah, sort of a sort of a second tier guy, but <laughs> lovable. <laughs> yeah, it depends on which end of the hippo you're staring at, I suppose. Right. Well, there's also um, I don't know if it's Towerette, but there's there's William the hippo, um, Middle Kingdom hippo that gets a lot of attention. That's in the Met. Yeah. So. Well, they they sort of transformed. A, a violent, vicious, gigantic animal into something adorable. Right, right. But we're um, not talking about hippos today. No, but I think this idea of transforming something that was alive and menacing into another form uh, that is not so menacing and possibly quite adorable or, or at least servile is is part of the well, what are we talking about? We're talking about crocodiles. Well, are we talking? Are we going to talk about both of these? Let's start with mummification. Let's start with the. Okay. Uh, let's start with the embalming workshop. Okay. 
<laughs> the children's embalming workshop. Precursor of the ch children's <laughs> television workshop. Ages eight and above. <laughs> That's right. It's some sort of. I'm sure there was some sort of you know kit that you could go and get your kids. So that they could mummify at home. <laughs> Practice. All right. Who's going to introduce the topic? Because we're all, we've already we've already gone way off. That's that's true. All right. So the topic, uh, the first of our two intertwined topics is um, this embalming workshop found at Saqqara, um, apparently just south of Unas's pyramid. But this is a 26th dynasty, 7th century embalming workshop. And um, what was interesting about this study is, um, well, I thought the cool thing was they integrated all these different types of evidence um, archaeological and organic residue and philological, because some of the um, jars were actually marked with what contained what, what they were in, what was in them rather, and what they were used for. And then they could um, analyze the organic residue and learn things. <laughs> but what did what did they learn? Well, I love the fact that the jars, and I think all of the jars had little descriptors on them i yeah. think that's like the coolest thing because it is like a little you know it's like a little kit it's right. like use your embalming kit you know <laughs> um, like, so examples like to put on his head right bandage yeah. or embalm with this so that's pretty specific yeah yeah and like different you know like sort of names of the different mixes right you know, you know? Here's a pot of mix A and here's a pot of mix B. So right. I think that that's, that's really interesting for a lot of reasons. But, but one of them is it, it's, not, it's not only a workshop, but it's sort of like a pedagogical system, right? It's like there's one person who's like leading the, leading the workshop. And, and it's like, you know, go get me something. You know, it, it'll say on it, you know. <laughs> <laughs> it'll say for, for the head. Yeah, go go to the back. It's somewhere on the right. It says right. Like, yeah, exactly. So um, I thought that was really cool and really interesting. Yeah, I thought so too. And the fact that for sometimes the first time we can identify the ancient names with the actual stuff that that it was. Um, right. And that was I'm not sure people had tried to do that systematically before, or had been able to do it systematically. I was going to say I don't think they've been able to do that. Yeah. Yeah. So, so it's a really cool. So, yeah, so Murr take a took a real hit. Yeah, seriously, yeah. right? Yeah, we all we thought Murr yeah. was being used for this, that, and the other, and now we realize no, right. it's a whole different product. Right. All, all of my Murr stocks are way, way down now. <laughs> exactly. Yes. Yeah, you should have sold before this article came out. But uh, <laughs> but pistachio um, is way up. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So I guess one of the big takeaways from all of this. Uh, not unlike the um, the tin episode we did, mm -hmm. which is the creation of yet another little world system in yeah. which you have products from all over Eurasia steaming their way towards towards workshops in Egypt uh, for the use of uh, embalming. Right. And I guess the two biggest, well, two products that come that came from the longest distance, the furthest distance, is this elemi resin, which comes from rainforests in either um, Asia or Africa? Asia or Africa, and I thought that I thought well, that was a little problematic because if it comes from sub-Saharan Africa, that's not a big deal. 
Right, exactly. Uh, you know that exactly. Egypt has been procuring all sorts of exotica from sub-Saharan Africa for millennia. Right. But if it's coming from Southeast Asia or Asia in general, I guess Southeast Asia because it's a rainforest product. Yeah. That's a big deal. Right. But they, they really didn't know where it came. They even said Central or South America, which does not really make too much sense. But uh, No, but it would do wonders for the Book of, uh, for the book of Mormon. That's true. That's a very good point. <laughs> yes. <laughs> But you gotta you gotta think horses, not zebras. So I kind of have to go with the the African rainforest. Oh, not well, this. but also Damar, and then and then right Damar, which comes from southern India or Sri Lanka or Southeast right. Asia. So that's definitely coming from far away, right? Right. Um, so that's I think that's one of the big things, and I guess. But we should also add that there are there's cypress. From Levantine cypress trees, right. there there right. might be cedar um, oil, juniper, um, the, you know, a, a waste putting it into a mummy when you could just be making gin, frankly, <laughs> beeswax, animal fat, and uh, bitumen, possibly from the Dead Sea. Right. So it's a it's a melange of spices, a spice melange, you might say. It is. Right. It's actually called the the seven sacred oils, <laughs> and I want to know who came up with that um, marketing term. <laughs> right. It's like my first seven sacred oils kit. Yeah. Yeah, and you use it in the opening of the mouth ceremony, which has always been a little bit freaky, because. <laughs> You know, is that, that the ripping out the brains with the iron hook thing, no, or is no, that no. like that's another myth that's been busted? Oh no, yeah. that's no, that's a real thing. Yeah. That, but 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 the opening of the mouth is is you know after you're dead, um, the you there are spells said and 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 rituals done, and your mouth is is metaphorically open so you can live and breathe in the afterlife, and that is that that this is a ceremony where you get weighed against truth, where you get weighed against mat. Mm -hmm. And if you, um, that's Anubis's job, right? Right. And if you don't make it, you get eaten by the eater whose name yeah. I forget right now, but he's always scary in his depictions. So, so now we know that, um, Sefet seems to be the oil that is listed or one of the oils listed as part of the seven sacred oils used in the opening of the mouth ritual. Yeah. I was a little struck by, well, it's not a struck. It's just a little qualification. This is a 26th dynasty tomb, so it's comparatively late. Yeah. They've been <laughs> they've been ripping out people's brains through their noses and mummifying the the heck out of them for thousands of years. Right. So are these extremely exotic um ingredients uh late additions to the to the kit? Or uh, as the Egyptian world system and as the Indian Ocean became part of the the larger kind of Mediterranean-ishized world, Near Eastern world, or were they there all along? And I don't think anybody can answer that. And doesn't doesn't make a lot of difference at the end of the day. No, but it is an interesting question. And I think this is what one of the things that I was kind of thinking about. It would be fun to start to put all of this exotica that's coming from all over the place, vanilla, tin, in, and, and, you know, correlate it in time and space and, you know, start getting a sense of the patterning because maybe now that we have, you know, vanilla in the middle bronze age, right? 
yeah. um, suggesting ties again with with uh, South Asia um, <clears throat> or further. So maybe this is all maybe these are already well established, you know, trade networks or like little enough of a trade network um, that it's not something new in the first millennium, but it's been around for, you know, since the beginning of the second millennium. Right. But also if we take a proper, a proper class-based perspective on this, <laughs> as, as we must, of course. Um, it's a very small samples and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, this is a, uh, it seemed like a fairly elite-ish sort of tomb. Right. So we don't really know anything about what the, uh, what the man and woman in the street um, was, was being mummified with. Yeah. And certainly the folks who were not being mummified, but were rather being buried in holes in the desert. Right. They right. couldn't afford it because, uh, because they're being exploited. Um, yeah. So my theory is that, you know, the whole process of, of mummification is simply making the process more and more and more elaborate over thousands of years mm-hmm. with more and more exotic ingredients just like we're supposed to be using, uh, oh, I don't know, you know, some kind of funky truffle oil um, <laughs> to show how cool we are yeah. in our omelets. And, um, you know, elite elite elaboration of, of rituals and which translates into actual material patterns of getting cool stuff. Yeah. <clears throat> and again, it's always about, you know, pace, intensity, and scale. What's the scale of all this stuff? Is it, you know, a few vanilla pods every every 100 years or, you know, in someone's uh, in someone's duffel bag? Or is it, you know, a real network of exchange? Um, I would suspect that because there's an embalming workshop that has to be that this is pretty, you know, significant, right? Right. Um, and that it's a pretty standard, um, you know, assortment of of what you need in your embalming workshop. Right. And, that and this and couldn't be the only one, that there had to be one of many uh, such workshops throughout Saqqara. Well, so, exactly. Um, and I think also just, you know, the fact that we have papyri that describe embalming processes, mummification processes, and also the whole ritual surrounding them, moving <clears> from this side of the Nile to that side of the Nile and all this, you know, obviously there, this is not the only one. Um, right. And much earlier ones, for sure. We just don't have this kind of analysis. Um, right. But w- one of the things that this is nice, that this sort of nicely demonstrates is what the Eastern Mediterranean and the Levant, North and South Levant, provides for Egypt which is, you know, cedar, cypress, juniper. Um, And that those are pretty in-demand exotica. And so that sort of, you know, kind of resituates what we think about what what the Levant means to Egypt, not just as a buffer area between various and sundry Near Eastern empires, but also an important, um, you know, an important um, area for, for, uh, you know, uh, imports. Yeah. They were good. They were good for something. Right. Exactly. (laughs) Trees, trees and tree products (laughs) and little pods and seeds and 
stuff of fragrant aroma and, and bitumen. Right. Right. Um, but that was sort of new, right? That sticky, was sort of a known thing. Goo. Yeah, bitumen was coming in from the Dead Sea for a and, long time. Right, and natron. And... But that comes from, uh, that's from Egypt. I think it's the Dead Sea also. No, it's that, um, isn't it from the Fayum? I'll have to look that up after. Um, okay. If we were doing this live, we could have a phone-in segment. <laughs> Someone could correct us. <clears throat> Good, okay. I'm just always struck at how much energy and money and and effort and time they spent on all of this mummification stuff that couldn't they find some better way to spend their spend their time and money uh, and it's just it seems like a very um very complicated economy to devote to this weird little ideological system and yes you know Americans with spent a lot of time and money on death and things like that. But <clears throat> okay, this is a little bit, <laughs> this is a little bit much. Well, I don't know. I mean, I think that, you know, that's what ideology does. It, it, it sucks the, it sucks the life out of a, of a system. You don't see a lot of other people's um, spending this much time and energy on an ideologically, you know, it's a, it's by definition you're you're throwing you're throwing money into a hole. Um, well, slow down though, because you say this. Just slow down. <laughs> <laughs> but um, don't forget um that the burial is only one part of the funeral, as has been said. Okay, that makes it even years. worse. No, no, no. It just means that's, that that's we a whole are circus act. <laughs> let's not let's not assign value judgments to this whole thing. <laughs> Hold just, on. <laughs> we're, it's we're just seeing, a, it's just an empty spectacle <laughs> to, we're seeing to a lot of physical evidence from egyptian material remains for for this death related ritual but there could be really elaborate rituals that don't require as much physical material you don't know how long a southern levantine funeral lasted it could have lasted 30 days for all we know i don't think it did but you know it could have we just don't have a lot of physical evidence um, well, so on. I, I think that's the point: is that they're not wasting their time and money no, <laughs> on thinking... trying to score, you know, commodities that come from India that well, are designed to preserve way. the body forever. We and... don't know if they're wasting their but the time. The vanilla in Megiddo was found in a tomb. Oh, come on! They have like one the equivalent of one vanilla bean. Okay, fine, <laughs> we're we're reconstructing a world system on on that okay. base. Somebody wandered by with a vanilla bean and said, "Smell this." Well, you know, it's more than just that. But, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. But regardless, uh, but also, you, you can have a, a whole lot of ritual that takes place over a long amount of time. They're they're spending their time on it, even if they're not buying expensive stuff to to do stuff to the body with. Um, and I think you can't you can't just make that kind of assumption. Although it does seem like they are, I admit they are spending a lot of time and getting a lot of important. But that's what the that's what the elites want out of the society. The elites want to devote all of this energy to death. Undoubtedly, it you know heightens their own prestige and status and power and everything else. So there's no impetus from the top to change any of these practices. And every time there is one of these intermediate periods, and there's only three of them, you know, things devolve down to the regional level, and then they get sort of built back up. 
But I think there's always a lot of impetus for the elites to create a system <laughs> whereby they're calling all the shots. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I don't think it's that unusual in that respect. And I think Mesopotamia sure, certainly has a lot of examples of extraordinary degrees to which religious systems spend money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, it's more of this, you know, pyramids are big and we therefore see them and therefore think about them a lot. And same with New Kingdom type burials, that they're more on our minds. Um, what I like about Mesopotamia is that after the third millennium, they just got down to the business of making money. <laughs> and <laughs> and there's something very honest and straightforward about, about that. I'm going to build a gigantic palace. That's that's fine. Um, and me, the king, is going to be buried in a, in a tomb. Everybody else is going to be buried in a hole or maybe in a clay coffin with, you know, some tchotchkes <laughs> tossed in. It's not like this self-replicating system that goes on for thousands and thousands of years and trickles all the way down to um, the the common folk or at least the the folks who are above the co- most commonplace folks. Oh, we have to get our natron. Oh, we have to get our cedar. Here, oh, I got some. I got some vanilla. It's well, like, that's that, that's what make each. That's what makes Egypt special. It right. does. Right. It, it's just this uh, this self-licking ice cream cone of, of, of ideology. <laughs> I hadn't said that. <laughs> oh, that's interesting. Um, well, I want to come back to some of the specifics here because um, stuff that I certainly didn't think about regarding mummification was one bowl was labeled to wash and it had conifer oil and another bowl <laughs> was labeled to make his odor pleasant and that had some sort of animal fat um, and and other um, things in it, and another was treatment of skin. So, like they were, they were. I know I've changed the subject a little bit radically. Sorry. Right. It was the Gwyneth Paltrow of their time. Yeah. Well, that's <laughs> that's a, a very good. I'm going to write that down. <laughs> this is like, this is like goop. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. That's what I was thinking. I mean, he's dead, right? But or she, but uh, they're still treating the body. You know, rubbing rubbing that. CBD oil into into the skin to keep it fresh and right. Oh, you know, did you not use the latest uh, deodorant right. <laughs> on on the body? Oh, that's uh, that's too bad. Well, well it made me <laughs> think that how how bad they must have smelled if they were using animal oil to cover the smell. Right. Yeah, that's a little disturbing in itself. <laughs> but they're also using they're also using this angiosperm, the flowering plant. I can't pronounce the Latin name, but yeah. Um, so <laughs> lots yeah. of flowering plants were being used, right? <laughs> so, right. So um, it's like everybody's lighting a, a ton of scented candles for very obvious reasons. Yeah. Right. And they've exactly. got they've got little you know spackling trowels trying to seal the whole thing up, <clears throat> so it doesn't get get exposed to air and dry out and fall apart. Right. And right. Can you imagine I mean, it's just, it's just like goop, really. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. What were you saying, Rich? I said that, can you imagine working in an embalming workshop? Well, that, but I mean, can you imagine working in an embalming mortuary today? Well, good point. I mean, there's, you know, it's the same. Yeah, although today, well, I suspect uh, they keep the temperature really low and, you know. Yeah, since the advent of cooling. Yeah, but and still the 
there's enough going on. Yeah, I think there's a little bit less disassembly involved. Um, um, no, I'm not so sure. There's still a lot of packing and makeup going on. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think anything's being removed through the nose. Well, through well. The nose. okay, not through the nose, but you do have, you know, embalming fluid replacing normal. Yeah, fluid. yeah. No, I'm not. I mean, it's it's a it's a whole thing. But yeah. <laughs> oh man, can we choose topics? Or Maybe what? they're not so different from us. <laughs> would this be a moment? I don't want to rush things, but would this be a moment to to talk about the fact that they also embalmed animals and sure yeah yeah though the crocodiles in, in question that we were going to tackle at some point were not uh we're not really embalmed right they, they were sort of sun-dried crocs <laughs> exactly yeah right next to the tomatoes oh wait a minute they didn't have tomatoes <laughs> but they were very well preserved except for a little a few little toes and Legs. claws that fell right. off right, right right so does someone want to introduce that um yeah, well, there's this down way down yonder near Aswan, where they found uh, <clears throat> five nearly complete dried and preserved crocs and a bunch of heads of of crocs um, with the with the average length of three meters, um, with leading to all sorts of questions like where did they get these crocodiles. Um, how did they capture these crocs? How did they capture them? And and with the the scholarly article had all these cool pictures of, you know, crocodiles in bondage live <laughs> yeah. today. And right. you know, that, that leads to all sorts of questions. Um can you hypnotize a crocodile the way you can an alligator and <laughs> wrestle it? But and the fact that so many were found in such a small space, it was like a two by two meter rock right. cut tomb. And it had five crocodiles and five crocodile heads all smushed in it. Right. And as you said, the average length was like three meters. <laughs> but I mean, but remember, they were dead when they were brought here. They were dead and dried right. out when they were brought here. But right. yeah. Um, right. And where did, where were they brought from? Probably a couple couple of kilometers away. Yeah. Seemed to be the conclusion. They weren't being brought from, you know, India or some extraordinary right. distance but right. they're, they're local but still but, but they're actually two kinds of local crocodiles two two species they're west african crocs and nile crocodiles right but but yeah um so, why 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 well that and that why? question right did they know what they were doing or did they just you know pick up the five nearest uh, ten nearest crocodiles that were sort of in a state of some kind of suspended animation where they could manipulate them easily and uh, and, and and use them. Right, right. Well, then I looked up about animal mummification. Right. And that's when the numbers start going off the chart. There's, there's a cemetery near Saqqara with a half a million uh, mummified ibises. Yeah. That's crazy. Ibisizizes, <laughs> um, another one with maybe a couple of million, and they're mummifying baboons and fish and bulls and dogs and, and birds and cats. Yeah, if yeah. you could, if, if it walked on two legs, or possibly four legs, right. they're gonna, cool. they're gonna mummify it. Yeah, and yeah, okay, most of these are 
late-ish, like first millennium BCE. But there are lots of early examples. This is like an industrial, it's like a whole industrial economy. Right. <laughs> right. Right. And no one really has I, I need a thousand that. mummified baboons stat. <laughs> All right. Come back at four. Um come on, what's it's yeah. a classic what's up with that situation, really. Well, let's talk about the possibilities. So one possibility is um food for the afterlife. I'm um, not eating a baboon. <laughs> you might if you're hungry enough in the afterlife. I guess. I've been accused of eating like a baboon, but the, never the um, opposite. <laughs> the more likely in my mind possibility is that um you are uh having animal mummies made to help approach a particular god who is right. represented by that animal. Um, but this led me to a whole other question. Um, because so so you're bearing. I guess you're finding them in more than one context, right? You're burying your mummified animals, not necessarily with you in your own tomb, but you might be. But if you're having them made to approach a particular yeah, they're, dad, you're they're not votives. What? They're votives. A lot of them are votives. So they're just right. buried, you know, they're not buried in a person's tomb. Right. right. They're stuffed into a temple dedicated to that deity. That right. <clears throat> and you're just, you're just purchasing, you're just giving a couple of drachma or shekels or whatever right. to purchase a... Uh, an already mummified off the rack, you know, little crocodile or cat or, you know. Right, right. Right. Give me three crocodiles, two cats, and maybe 10 ibises. Right. Put, and, put and it on my tab. One thing that really struck me, which, I mean, we've been aware of this before, but um, so, you know, you cat scan these mummies and well, also in the days when you would unwrap these these mummies and you see that the animal is not necessarily complete, right? It might be missing parts or it might be much smaller than, than much smaller than the mummy casing. What are you, the better business bureau? It's <laughs> the thing, like you, you commission this from a priest, right? Who makes it, but the priest doesn't care about doing it right. Cause no one's going to see inside. So exactly. they're, yeah. So they're taking whatever animal they find and they're kind of sculpting the shape of, you know, whatever it is to, Yeah. So that's it's a corrupt little industry mummification. Exactly. <laughs> and we're going to blow the lid off of it. Riddled <laughs> with intrigue. Right. So, so what do we think of these particular crocodile mummies? Um, it makes me wish that that time that we were in New Orleans all those years ago, that I really had bought that, that alligator belt. <laughs> um, that's the main thing it makes me think. Besides that, I'm like, okay, <laughs> you guys, you know, if if it walks or talks, you're going to mummify it right. one way or the other. And, and good on you. And, you know, this is not, this is not great stewardship of the land, but right. whatever. But I mean, here's the other issue I have with this is, um, with these crocodiles in particular, but also, you know, cats and whatever, um, you're, and in the, in this case, if you're, if you're catching them somehow, and then the options of, of killing them, because there's no violence in these particular crocs, no evidence of violence, they're either like letting them die from dehydration or suffocation or, or, you know, they're not clubbing them to death. Is this the way to treat an animal that represents the god Sobek? I mean, there's this disconnect. Oh, I think they they have a completely different, you know, sensibility on that front. 
right? Well, I guess, but <clears throat> you're still tormenting an animal. Well, we don't know if they're tormenting it, but they're treating the animal just, just the, the same way as they're treating, you know, the 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 elites and the some parts of the middle class of their own society. So in that regard, it's kind of the same thing. But they're not um, killing their elites. They're killing the No, animals. no. But I mean, <laughs> once they're right. Well, I'm, I'm talking about the actual cause of death. Oh, yeah. Well, is it any different than any of the Levantine traditions in which you're slaughtering hundreds of sheep and goat and cow and, you know, I mean, the temple in Jerusalem must have been a, you know, 24-7 abattoir right, right. <laughs> no, during the high holidays. So I don't think, it, I think that, you know, right. I don't think it's much different than any of those. <clears throat> well, I think when, when you're talking about a sacrificial economy of sheep and goat, there's only one word that comes to mind, and that's shawarma. <laughs> <laughs> and... There you have viable edible products that are being circulated in some fashion through, <clears throat> through the economy. And you can, okay. you can say it, it's kind of bloody and, you know, messy. Well, it most it, definitely was bloody and messy. Right. Well, that's why you can say it. <laughs> right. In well, fact, you do say it. <laughs> use the active voice on that one. <laughs> um, but I, nobody's, nobody's eating these crocodiles or, or, or millions of ibex ibises <laughs> not ibex the noble right. ibices indices it's um, it's purely it's purely extractive there's no circulation right, involved but, but this is such a long tradition in egypt right and it was and it was very well ensconced right. in the heart of the old kingdom extract all this stuff stuff it in a pyramid and you know take one quarter of your GMP and out of circulation. So I don't think that that's a big, I think it's just a very consistent system. And that's what we know about Egypt. It's very, very conservative and it's relatively unchanging. And this is all part of that mentality that goes back to, you know, Nakata two and three burials in, in uh, at Abydos. It's a giant um, kind of Ponzi scheme. A, a, a pyramid scheme, you might say. Oh, definitely a pyramid scheme. <laughs> uh -huh. um, well, in which you have to keep extracting, extracting, extracting more and more and more and more. And yes, but don't you think the crocodiles are in a slightly different category because these are ant like you can strangle a cat, right? You can. <laughs> <laughs> whoa, whoa, slow down there. Wow. You can, Who's no, strangling? You can, you can slaughter a sheep with a knife. On behalf of the management, we we do not endorse Absolutely strangling not. I, as much I, as I, I like don't cats. like cats. But Well, I do like cats. I would never do that to a cat, but I'm just saying that you can have say a that quick... now. A quick kill on certain animals, including those that you're going to eat with a nice, you know, kosher slaughtering or the equivalent, you know, one. Yeah, okay. And a crocodile, because you have to save yourself from its mouth and its its claws, you can't just kill it cleanly. Um, and right. I think. The, never seen a baboon? You would never want to tangle with a baboon. Firstly, they smell unbelievably awful or at least very pungent. And secondly, man, they're strong and they're rangy. They move fast. <laughs> right. Basically, basically You'd have to use got, some kind of net. Right. They've got four arms and a tail all ready to go. So <laughs> taking on a baboon, yeah, that's actually I mean, kind of interesting just thinking about that. 
right, right. So but that's the whole point of of sacrificing a baboon or a crocodile. Oh, I'm the master of these. I'm the master of these species. I'm propitiating these these forces, whatever they are that they represent, and I'm gonna I'm gonna make good with the crocodile baboon god gods um, by by doing this. I don't know what kind of message of sacrificing a, a poor little pussy cat. Well, sends. I think that each animal is endowed with a different. Yeah, yeah, you forgot like, like and characteristics. So I don't think that's you know they all have something to offer. Right. Doesn't represent doesn't really represent much wealth. No, but it represents. Right. Well, so that was for the the right. That was for you know the bottom of the pyramid. Right. 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 I don't know. I just thought it was interesting that this is you know this is a different type of animal. But you make a very good point about baboons that they're also a different type of of animal. Um, and but they chose not to not to eviscerate these crocodiles and they chose not to you know apparently wrap them or maybe they were wrapped but insects ate all the linen wrapping so it's a different it's a different situation right and they stuffed them all in a four four meter square tomb yeah yeah what's that about like what i yeah yeah we don't know it's all pretty it's all pretty enigmatic yeah um, but it does connect the fact that there are workshops and the fact that there are these crazy little burials stuffed with, you know, da dangerous animals. Um, yeah. Uh, and then there's this world system angle, world system side of things. Right. Got to keep all the animals going. Got to keep them moving, which is not in, in that sense. It's not terribly different from other periods let's say the roman period when animals are being sacrificed in temples left and right and animals by the extraordinary numbers wild animals vicious animals are fighting each other and being you know pitted against gladiators and prisoners and this kind of horrible disgusting spectacle <clears throat> so the whole there's a whole series of animal economies besides what's for dinner that that's are out true. there that, that's very true but that's also that's part of the entertainment industry and, and, <laughs> well a song a little dance yeah um which is different than the crocodile mummies but but yeah um well it's it's a different rationale but it's it's a similar sort of economy you know got to got to make the you know got to make the donuts <laughs> where where am i going to come up with 10 alligators or 10 crocodiles um was a common lament in the in the ancient world like oh where am i going to come up you know the, the caesar wants x number of tigers for this show to eat eat these prisoners where am i going to come up with these now right. right right that's an interesting point and critters are being live critters are being moved sometimes extraordinary distances, not not of their own volition, we might add. Right, right. Um, so I mean, I don't know. I have to change the topic slightly again. Sorry in advance. Um, so first of all, uh, Natron, you were right, comes from Wadi El Natrun in in Egypt. So I needed to correct that. But I've often thought about mummification. It's like you know, they wanted to come back alive in the afterlife, so they needed the body. 
Um, but what they actually really succeeded in doing is, is posterity, um, not only for themselves, but for their animals too. It's like, you know, there they are and whether or not they should be displayed in museums, of course, is a whole other issue, um, which you mentioned at the beginning. Well, I, I think that this ironically unifies um, several of these, several of these themes in that uh, they become part of an educate uh, uh, an ed edutainment system. <laughs> <laughs> you're now, you're now. aiming for immortality, but you <laughs> you end up being a you know sideshow act. Right. But, but is that good enough? Who's to say? Yeah, but there they are. I mean, you know, they have lasted. We know, and in in best case scenarios, we know Second Henry's name, and this is his body, and Ramses II, same thing, and. Um, and so I, what I, are you guys getting at about this whole mummification fetish that there's something radically wrong with the with the powers that be in ancient Egypt or we don't get it? Um, neither. Yes, that's my answer. <laughs> neither. Neither. I think it's um, it's it's a, a semi successful attempt at posterity. And not not did, did they but, come back? No, no, okay, so they didn't come back. <laughs> that's the that's the semi part. We won't really know until we die. Well, exactly. But certainly, you know, here we are, three thousand ish, whatever years later, we are looking at their bodies. They're still part of the conversation. They, very good. Yes, indeed. I so, don't think that's that. That's what they were not aiming for, really, was it? Um, I don't think would would they be would they be unhappy? <laughs> would their concepts of happiness be even accessible to us and vice versa would they want to i mean wouldn't here's a reese's peanut butter cup second end right we love these things what are you, what are you talking about i have these giant axe holes in my head i have bigger problems i, I think it, we're talking at cross purposes i don't know if we are i'm thinking that you know ramses ii might say huh this isn't exactly how i thought it was going to be but look here i am and you know people are staring at me through a glass case but uh, here i am <laughs> well i think you're giving a lot of agency to the dead <laughs> to dead ramses but what do you think? oh I, I i what do i think i think that uh I think that with very conservative, isolated cultures, all bets are off, right? So, you know. But these guys weren't isolated. Well, they were and they weren't. They, you know, whatever they needed from the outside world, they imported. But they were pretty, you know, in terms of ideology, they were pretty insular and self-sufficient. Except for, you know, the raw materials. But that goes for a lot of societies. They are always constantly importing raw materials that they need to turn into their own little ideological totems. But um, I think that the conservatism is really, for me, one of the most interesting and powerful things. Um, and, you know, the kind of institutional memory that these temples had and the priesthood had. And I think it's a giant sunk cost fallacy. 
<laughs> well, it wasn't a fallacy because it worked for thousands of years. Well, it 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 worked, but uh, and and yeah, they had to give up on the whole pyramid thing because that was clearly like over the top. Yeah, yeah, can't right. so that got picked up and reinterpreted in Nubia in its own way. Right. Okay. I mean, other people, other people thought it was spiffy, but um, <clears throat> but yeah, let's let's just create these these institutions and ideologies and behaviors that extract and extract and extract and extract and extract for thousands of years. And yes, let's, let's spend all of our energy on that and catching baboons and, and um, let's, let's not create any, let's not create anything else. But that's, but in many respects, that's what institutions do is they, perpetuate themselves they're kind of like biological entities in that regard <laughs> they just want to self-perpetuate right. and they want to expand and they want to specialize and and this is sort of a weird um iteration <laughs> they kind of got stuck maybe so there is that right but every every egyptian funerary cult every egyptian rich egyptian who died had a funerary cult that basically was supposed to exist forever yeah. as a as a parasitic institution. And well, wouldn't you say that, I mean, I've heard what you say about, you know, contemporary institutions and <laughs> certainly the word the parasitic is often associated with them. So I, again, I don't, I think that there's Where's a- Where's the creative destruction? <laughs> well, and again, that's the kind of, that's the special sauce, right? That's the sort of, that's the sort of mysterioso behind the Egyptian example, the Egyptian case study, is that they've taken it to a very, very strange, weird extreme that makes it hard to, you know, it's very inaccessible to a certain degree. And anything that we say about it is really, really speculative and probably pretty presentist. Right, no, that's all That's all true. Um, and maybe that's part of their, their appeal today. <laughs> right. Well, there's certainly a lot of appeal. I mean, anytime you walk into a big stone temple filled with thousands of mummified, and the crocodiles that get mummified, at least in the temples sort of further north, are tiny little crocodiles. Yeah, right? they're baby crocodiles. Right. So they're, you know, so it's sort of like going to a tchotchke shop in Florida where they have all those tiny little alligator heads. Right. I mean, you know, it's it's all part of that kind of thing. I'm sure P.T. Barnum would be able to give a much better explanation yeah. for that than us. Right. I mean, the physicality of it is a big deal. And that's, you know, the big tombs, the dead bodies. I think that's all kind of part of the appeal or perhaps lack of appeal. But um, does the does the the notion of immortality and precisely what you were talking about? Oh, we can gaze upon their <laughs> their unmoisturized faces right. um, thousands of years later, um, as opposed to the dust that awaits the rest of us. Is that part of the appeal? I think it is. I think it is. Yeah. I mean, it's right. Because, you know, you look at them and they look just like us. Um, they are us. We are them. Um, <laughs> well, I think, I'm not. Well, we're not elites. But, I'm not uh, going there. But right. But there's no, we're all we're all humans. We're all. Um, and and this happens to all of us, not mummification, but death. And uh, I don't That's know. Right. And they've cheated and they've cheated death exactly. in, in this in well, this narrow unreal sense that was my sense that was my point that they've cheated death in a narrow unreal sense well put um 
and I and so have their crocodiles. They, you, yeah. Cheating death, one crocodile at a time. <laughs> okay. I think that they are basically so unknowable to us that we, we must we know a lot about them, but we know nothing about them. We must right. we we must lead ourselves with our with the mass of our knowledge. Right. right. Um, well, what that'll be my final thought. I think. Okay. Yeah. But I and I always think that if we transport ourselves to any of these ancient time periods, we'd be shocked at what we see. Yeah. That we've either overanalyzed or underanalyzed, but we probably never really know it. <laughs> I, I read something this past week about. Um, some Native American guy who went and got a PhD in, in anthropology. And he went back to uh, his home in the, on the reservation and with one of his overeducated colleagues who said, who was looking around going, Oh, this is so cool. And Oh, here are, here are four rocks piled one on top of the other. What's the significance of, of that? <laughs> And the guy looked at it and said, well, that's where my dad put these four rocks so we wouldn't park the car any further forward. Right. And well, it's right. Well, that's what we're always missing, right? Yeah. Right. We're missing that for the Iron Age. We're missing that for, for everything. Yeah. yeah, for everything. Yeah. Well, this episode has left me pondering the nature of the hereafter and hoping I'm not on display in some futuristic museum someday. In the meantime, though, we'd like to thank Erez Dessel, Community Engagement Coordinator for the Chicago Philharmonic for our theme music. We'd also like to thank our sponsors, the Cinema Society of Hoople, showing the classic film The Mummy Strikes tonight at 8. So, to get in touch, leave us a comment. You could hit the little like button also at the bottom of the page here. Send us an email at This Week in the Ancient Near East. Yes, it's all one word. We all know that. At gmail.com. Or send us a postcard at P.O. Box 1177, Boston, Mass., 02134.